Hi guys, welcome back for another episode of Beyond Body. So happy to be back for another episode. So glad to hear you're getting so much out of what was already uploaded before the podcast launched. Thank you for all of your amazing feedback. There is so much exciting stuff planned for this podcast. We'll be talking about obviously eating disorder recovery, general mental health, women's health, I've got a long list of incredible guests who I know you're going to benefit from in enormous ways. But this week is going to be different in that you just got me. It's a solo one. And there's a very good reason why it's a solo one. I contemplated having my sister with me, maybe even my therapist. (laughs) Good person to have with you most of the time. But there are a few reasons why it's important for me to do this one on my own. Before we get into it, just a bit of a warning. This is going to be a heavy one. This could potentially be uh, upsetting for people who have experienced grief, who have particularly experienced complex grief or traumatic grief. There's a reason why I have a toilet roll next to me and that's because one, I'm out of tissues and two, I'm definitely going to cry in this episode. If you have even cared for someone through cancer or cared for and lost someone to terminal cancer, this could be upsetting too. For any of my family members or anyone who knew dad, you don't have to listen to this one. This one, again, could be upsetting for very specific personal reasons. So obviously that gives it away. Today I'm going to be talking about not just the loss of my dad, but also the impact that it's had in the last year and a half on my mental health, on my life, on my sense of self, because there is so much grief in the world at the moment and has been over the last 12 months. We've lost half a million people in America alone. I don't doubt that there are a lot of people who would hear this and get it and resonate and maybe like me will go periods of time not realizing that's what they're dealing with is traumatic grief I only worked that out in the last few months so grief is something most of us can wrap our heads around as far as the concept not actually going through it it's tough for everyone no matter what the severity or you know what the connection to the person was traumatic grief is when you lose someone in circumstances which might be unexpected where it's sudden or it is immediate. Somebody's lost in an accident or with COVID where, you know, it's such a rapid decline that there's not a lot of time for the brain to sort of prepare for what's coming. It could be like in my situation where there maybe is technically time to prepare with someone having a terminal diagnosis, but that the way in which they pass Uh, is not expected that something within the event itself uh, is unanticipated and the way my dad died the last hour of his life was very unexpected I think that it's something that we don't talk about a lot I've really struggled with that aspect of grief that no one really knows how to talk about grief no one really knows how to talk about traumatic grief a lot of people don't even know that it's a thing So I don't have a lot of answers with this, which is the other reason I wanted to talk about it as an early podcast episode, because I do want to talk to people who know a lot more about this than I do. My therapist is helping me enormously, 
uh, to understand. So I'll be sharing a bit of, in the context of my experience, what I've come to understand. But I am by no means here as a psychologist or someone to give you the technical stuff or any of the, uh, you know, um, solid research behind it. I am really here as someone who's learning myself. And much like I did with my recovery, sharing this with a community and talking about it uh, I think could be enormously helpful hopefully to you but I know it is to me that was something unanticipated in my recovery which was sharing with you guys and having this community as tiny as it was to start with you cured my shame around my eating disorder it was one of the first things to go in my eating disorder was the shame and I have a lot of shame and a lot of guilt as it relates to my dad's death and I know that there's people out there who are probably walking around with the same feeling. So uh, it does not come naturally to me to share. That sounds weird coming from someone who's been sharing some pretty personal stuff for seven years, uh, but it doesn't come naturally to me to be vulnerable. It is the thing which terrifies me the most. So I'm also doing this because I'm only just learning how to talk about what happened and to talk about my dad um even mark didn't know until literally a few days ago sunday i think is that right monday i don't know i'd never told him the details i don't think i've even told josie the details um because if i go there i end up up back in the room and the place and the time um And so for the purpose of today's episode, they are the only notes I have is what happened to my dad. And that's so that I can just sort of read it and get through it without hopefully being kind of pulled back into that place. So for a bit of context, you can go and listen to on the Unfiltered podcast and I'll put that link in um, the description of this episode. Um, My dad had terminal cancer. It was prostate cancer. He had it for two and a half years before He passed away. He lived in America. My sister and I, who ended up being his primary carers, live in Australia, obviously, which made it incredibly difficult. It made it so hard to tell what was going on, how his uh, medical situation was being handled because he was not good with advocating for himself medically and it would be very hard to get straight answers out of what was going on he did really well on treatment for a long time and then he started to nosedive in about april of 2019 and i was there visiting him not having moved there to take care of him yet just visiting him and he had ended up in the hospital and was in a severe amount of pain and that's sort of where my memories start as far as the stuff which I would probably group into the traumatic stuff is you know not expecting to see him in the state that he was in not having any warning or anticipation of that and then being confronted with someone who is very quickly declining so again as much as you can have a diagnosis which you think gives you the ability to prepare once someone starts declining and if you aren't there to see it each day uh, that is traumatic grief I didn't know that I didn't know that until it was explained to me by my therapist I said but you know I 
knew. I knew he was dying. I knew he would die. And she said, yeah, on the other side of the world where you didn't see what state he was in every day. And he would answer calls from the hospital and you wouldn't have even known he'd been taken to hospital and he would have been there for like a, three days and he wouldn't have been answering calls and then suddenly he was in the hospital. And then you come to America and he's declining and you're visiting him and then you're moving back in a few weeks and then he's gone a few weeks after that. And I was like, oh my God, is that is that unexpected even though I knew he was going to die and she was like yes <laughs> that's what I mean she's great she doesn't let me get away with anything that's the best thing about any therapist I work with is you have to be 10 steps ahead of what my brain is trying to tell me and she is uh, she does not let me get away with anything so that was the first important realization was putting into context like all of my confusion and all of my not understanding like why have I taken this so badly when what you hear from people when they know that your loved one has died because of a protracted illness is and I understand why they say this this is not judgment it is frustration that we don't teach people more about grief they'll say things like well aren't you so glad you had the time with him and you knew and on one hand sure on one hand, of course, I would rather have the chance to have the conversations and to say everything I want to say. And I got all of that opportunity. Don't get me wrong. And I am exceedingly grateful for it. But there is really no good way for someone to die or a way for it to minimize how much it hurts. Um, and when you have someone who has a terminal diagnosis, no one gives you the diagnosis and says and here's the date or even here's the month or the year or even decade for some people when you are going to lose this person it's like they go here's the diagnosis and here's a ticking time bomb but we've covered up the countdown so you can't see the numbers running down and you don't actually know when this is going to go off now go and put that under your house and just wait for it to explode that's what it feels like all that anxiety, all of that anticipation and questioning yourself, should I do this, should I do that, should I be trying to respect his wishes and give him his space and let him live his life, uh, having to live your own life as well and support yourself and trying to live your life and be present but half your brain and heart is over in America worrying and wondering and questioning yourself. So when he declined really intensely and he was put into hospice which again we were not prepared for that love you dad but this was not the best way to handle this um we were told he was in hospice which means someone is pretty much off treatment and preparing to die so my sister and I went over to take care of him and for his sake I'm not going to go into the detail of what that entailed it was something which was an enormous privilege to have someone trust you and put their total care in your hands when they are an adult who would rather do anything than not have their daughters taking care of all the stuff we took care of for him to put that trust in us is an enormous gift uh, it was very, very difficult. The, cir the circumstances surrounding taking care of him, some of the dynamics with people in his life made it almost impossible to take care of him at times. Not him. He was an absolute 
darling and dream and grateful and just classic dad, a wonderful person to take care of. But it was very confronting to suddenly be in the parental role. And I mean, with everything in every category, all the really confronting stuff you can think of times it by about a thousand with what is required when someone is that ill and their body is failing them, you know? So that was something I also didn't understand until going through therapy with a very good therapist that that was traumatic too, that that was unexpected. No one had prepared my sister and I. No one said, not the doctors, not the nurses, not people in his life who were of an age and an experience where someone could have told these two you know, women who are adults, we're in our early 30s, um, what's going to happen? We were adults, but we were still his children and totally unprepared. Uh, and I can understand why no one wanted to tell us at the time. But now I speak to people and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I, I thought of you going over there. I thought, oh, they're going to have to do this and that. And I'm like, great. Couldn't you have told me then? Like, <laughs> And I know people don't want to have uncomfortable conversation in case, un- un- conversations in case it upsets you more. But there's something really um, much worse about not being prepared because your brain has to catch up and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it just goes into total survival mode and so you don't get to process it. You don't get to unpack it as it's coming and go, okay, I kind of knew this was going to happen. I kind of prepared for this. I don't actually know how it's going to go, but I've got some idea. If you just go in and you have no preparation, my goodness, um, the brain does not process that well. This is where it gets hard and I will start reading. Um. Okay. By the time my dad passed away, he was nonverbal. He couldn't get out of bed. He couldn't move. His joints were essentially tumors at that point. And every time he moved, he was in pain. I can't bring myself to imagine because if I do, I will freak out. Um, Even though he couldn't move, he was in the stage which is called the death rattle stage where they breathe and they literally make a rattling noise because of how everything's breaking down and their inability to swallow and I was lying next to him each night because even though he was in that stage he would wake up and he would panic because he needed to go to the bathroom we had nappies and pads under him And we had a bottle to like a bottle urinal thing because he could no longer get out of bed to go to the bathroom. So I was on a single mattress on the floor next to him. I didn't sleep because you can't sleep when you're listening to your dad uh, with a death rattle, knowing that he's going to die in a matter of however long. Again, ticking time bomb. You still don't know how long. So I would lie next to him because I had to give him medicine every two to three hours and I would have to stop him from trying to get out of bed and help him pee into the bottle so he couldn't speak to me he couldn't 
verbalize anything. He wanted to go. He was so over it. But by this stage, you're not, you're not really dealing with the person you knew anymore. They're, they're kind of gone and they're just lying there kind of waiting for their body to let them go. So I would feed him his medication, which was Dilaudid. It was a pill every three hours. I could at that point get a straw in his mouth and get him to swallow. And then it got to the point where he couldn't do that because I would put the pill on his tongue and talk to him and say, Dad, I'm putting the pill on your tongue. And then I would put the straw in his mouth. And by the time I got the straw in his mouth, his brain had forgotten that I'd put the pill on his tongue and his eyes would roll back. And then he'd come to again and I'd say, Dad, I need you to swallow. And he wouldn't know what I was talking about. So two seconds was too long for him to retain that information. This is relevant uh, because of what happened when he passed away. And this is going to get increasingly difficult to listen to for some people. Um, But important for my healing to talk about it. And also so that I don't have to talk about it in this detail going forward I can just send this to future podcast guests and be like just listen to this (laughs) um so that was for three nights I didn't sleep I'd maybe get 45 minutes I would drive back to the house my sister and I were living in which was about a four or five minute drive away have a quick shower the mid next morning once Sarah had taken over his care in the morning I would sleep for about 40 minutes and then I would drive back I know it's not safe please don't give me a hard time for doing that but I didn't I really didn't have a choice um and I hadn't been there the day before or two days before no so the day he died he'd been non-verbal and hadn't been able to move for three days the day before he went non-verbal his nurse aide had insisted that he be showered I wasn't there. I was sleeping and sharing at home and Sarah was there and he was in a lot of pain and he'd begged Sarah in tears to please not let him be moved again until he died. Like that was what he was saying. And he was like a kid, she said, just begging. And even though I wasn't there, she told me that. I knew that. So... It's three days after that. I haven't been sleeping. Uh, I go back in the afternoon. The nurse aide comes back and says, we're not going to shower him, but we do need to, and I'm the only one in the room with her, but we do need to move him. And I said, he's begged not to be moved. Please don't move him. Okay, now I'm going to go back to reading because I know I'll I'll, uh, not be able to talk if I keep trying to just talk. So... By the time the nurse aide wanted to move him and she wanted to do that because he had bed sores and she said that, yes, it would be painful to move him, but he was already in pain because of the bed sores. So the best thing for us to do was to move him. Um, so but by the time the nurse aide wanted to move him, I was exhausted. So when she insisted repeatedly that we had to move him, my guard was down I'm usually a very good advocate for other people, but I wasn't that day. Um, He'd begged my sister before he lost the ability to speak to not be moved again. He begged through tears, um, but just with me there with the nurse aide, I was too tired to push back. So I left the room to go and get back up from 
someone else who lived there who was in my dad's life or from my sister. I came across somebody else who wasn't my sister first who took um, a bit of my attention, uh, which I'm not happy about, but I can't go into that detail. I'm sorry I have to be so vague about that, but I do. Uh, By the time I came back, she was moving him and he was screaming. Uh, He was making a noise that I hear all the time now. His body was shuddering and um, it was like the noise of a wild animal. My sister was in there. She just happened to come up the stairs and heard him. And we all gathered around and we changed the sheets and we changed the pads and it all happened in about two minutes. It felt like forever and he was screaming. So this was someone who'd been nonverbal, who hadn't opened his eyes, who had a death rattle, who was suddenly so, so in so much pain. Um, so I left the room. I left him alone. She moved him. I came back to his body shaking violently and hearing these screams. Um, I've never heard a sound like it. I pray every day I don't hear it again. Unfortunately, I hear it in my head. I hope no one else has to hear it. This is why we need to change the laws around how we let people die. Um, so then we, he was lying still, but still shuddering. And his eyes were wide open. They were very yellow and very glazed because he, his body was in, like he was about to die. And then we put him, I put him through that. In my mind, this is how I talk about it. This is how I feel. This is the stuff I'm working through. And I knelt down next to him and he was clutching my hand and he had his eyes open. And I was just saying, I'm so sorry, dad. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry so sorry we had to I we had to we were given two terrible options but I left the room I could have fought harder for him and he wasn't angry at me he was angry at the nurse aide she would talk to him and he would growl because he couldn't talk he couldn't speak English so I was about a few inches away from his face and I was just staring at him like I was saying, I'm sorry. And I hear you and I'm angry for you. I'm so sorry. I know you're angry. Again, not angry at me. My dad would never be angry at me. There's going to be nothing left of this toilet roll. Um, and I said... I'm angry for you. You just be as angry as you want to. You just scream and scream and scream. You do whatever you have to do. I'm here. I'm listening. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And he was trying to talk. It was like he was speaking this language that was a very, like, clear language, but it wasn't English. And I knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, please help me go. Please help me can't do this anymore please let me go but please help me go and I turned to the nurse aide and 
there's another reason I haven't spoken about this until now, and that was because I legally didn't know if I could, but I don't really care at this point because people shouldn't be left in this position to have to do this. Um, I turned to his nurse aide, who's not a nurse. She's not trained to be able to like dispense medication or make recommendations like that. And I was beside myself and I said, what can we do? And she said, I can't tell you what to do. I can only tell you he's in a lot of pain. And I was like, well, that's really, excuse my language, effing helpful. What can we do to help him? She said, I can't tell. And she was being looking me in the eye without blinking and trying to send me a message without sending me a message. And she said, um, he probably needs help to not feel pain, but I can't tell you what to do. And I looked at my sister and I said, fuck it. And I picked up his morphine and I fed him as much of it as I could. And he was gone about an hour later. So that's what I go back to every time I think of my dad, every time I talk about my dad. And that's the only thing that used to trigger it was talking about my dad or thinking about him. And as the last year and a half has progressed, it's become a lot of things. If I hear someone talking about cancer, if I hear someone talk about morphine, if I see a show or a movie, even a trailer for it, talking about cancer, I can't watch movies where someone dies. Um, I really struggle to see dads with their kids. Um, anything that reminds me of my dad, which is a lot of stuff. It's politics. Um, it's his favourite food. I went, someone bought me a Violet Crumble and I had to throw it away because that was my dad's favourite chocolate and I took them to him when I moved to America to take care of him. Um, all these things that if I think about them or interact with them, for the last year and a half, I, my brain takes me back to that room. That's what traumatic grief is. That you can't grieve the person because every time you think of this person who you love, where all you have left of them is your memories of them and you can't access that because there's this big um, there's this big wall between you and the good things you want to think of and when people say to me, well, what would your dad say to me? I'm like, please don't ask me that question because all I can remember is what he tried to say to me before he died. And so I can't think of my dad in happy ways. I can't look at photos of him. I struggle to look at the videos that I took of him before he died um, because I end up back in that room. So all the usual suggestions that people have and they're so well-intentioned and they make a lot of sense for grief to 
you know, help someone process, to celebrate them, talk to them, um, think of a happy memory and go to that. I haven't been able to do that. Um, and I didn't know what that was. I thought what I was dealing with for the last year and a half was just grief and that what's wrong with me? Why can't I process this like why can't I talk about him why do I go to pieces whenever these certain minor things come up this doesn't seem to be how other people talk about grief this doesn't seem to fit with that narrative about how people usually process or experience grief and then um, the first time I went back to therapy because for additional context I react I responded to the trauma by becoming really productive that's what I do and I've been doing it pretty much for the last year and a half so after my dad died I launched a podcast I think I was uploading a couple of times a week I ran a workshop for 20 people I you know was still working with clients part of that was financial and because I love my work and it was a I thought it was a good distraction which in part it was but I saw some research recently about how workaholics or people who are overproductive, there's some emerging research to say that that has to do with trauma and avoiding trauma and distracting and, and, and well, not distracting, avoiding, filling your time up, filling your focus up so you don't have to look somewhere else. Kind of like an eating disorder, right? If I just look at my rigidities and my rules and my thinking is so flooded with food stuff and movement stuff and eating disorder chatter then I don't have to deal with the stuff underneath that and that's not to say this is you know this has resulted in an eating disorder I am still fully recovered thank goodness but my dad died in the August my sister and I had six weeks a hectic six weeks to wrap up his life over there throw out a lot of really precious things not throw them out we donated them to goodwill but we had to let go of a lot of his books and books meant everything to him with his you know writing in the margins we had to pick a select few that we could bring back we came back with two huge suitcases each filled to the brim and had to get rid of so many things that we'll never see again you know we came back we got back in october the next I came down to the south coast because I'd let go of my apartment when I left Sydney to go and take care of him and came down to the south coast the fires started down here the really horrific bushfires that was in our area that was you know our little patch of the south coast was the only untouched town in hundreds of kilometers of burnt out um, raging fires so for about three months we dealt with that <clears throat> with the threat of how our, our entire you know house going and our lives being at risk um in the january my mum had a major surgery which couldn't be rescheduled and she was uh bedridden for six weeks i was her full-time carer for six weeks uh also taking care of my gran who was 92 and still alive at the time and doing her shopping and cooking for her and um all her bits and pieces our neighbor barry across the road who's a sweetheart is also in his 90s and because 
uh, COVID rolled around in um, March, I was doing his shopping as well. So he wouldn't, and I just took more and more and more on. And then my grand died in May. My mood had started to lift a bit. I'd gone to therapy. Uh, and I remember one morning watching the sunrise over Molly Mock Beach and going, this is the most I've felt like myself in months, you know, since probably the year before. And I think it was that week or the next week. Her alarm went off at her home. She had a button that she would wear on a chain around her neck that if something went wrong, she'd hit it and it would go to this central base and then they would call mum and call an ambulance. It's this system called Vital Call for elderly people. It was about nine o'clock at night. Mum came and picked me up or she came to get the key of Grant for Grant's place and I said, I'll come with you. Like You're not going up there by yourself. I was the first one up the stairs. I found her. Um, she'd she'd had a heart attack and then she'd her she'd already died before she fell but the way she fell meant there was a lot of blood on the floor I was told by the ambulance the paramedics to give her CPR until the paramedics got there physically um and I think that's probably another thing my brain just didn't need um at the time uh So that was really hard. That wasn't so traumatic because she was elderly and I loved her dearly. And I'm, you know, so grateful that I had the relationship I had with her. But she was ready to go. It's very different from my dad in that way. It was unexpected, but not really by comparison. Uh, Organized the funeral, you know. Did all of that, made sure people could join by Zoom and set all of that up. Again, distraction, distraction, distraction. Shortly after that, I got in a brief relationship with someone. And I don't talk about my private life in that sense very much, but just for context. Uh, wonderful guy who was going through a really hard time with his mental health and needed more from me. Um, at that time than I could give so I had to end that because it was at that point that I realized I just like my role as the like the person keeping everyone afloat had just come to an end like I just couldn't do it anymore and I had to take that position with other people in my life who were just asking for way more than I was saying I could give um and was trying to set boundaries Uh, naturally this is before I even realized how badly all of this was affecting me I just naturally had to push back on people who just wanted from me what I couldn't give them um, and for whatever reason couldn't understand that uh, or wouldn't understand that and reacted to that boundary setting and pushing back badly Uh, unfortunately that might happen when you take care of yourself guys and you need to be prepared to always put yourself first I stopped doing that for a long time that's that was my first big mistake is forgetting what I learned in recovery which is that unless I am okay then I can't do anything else right um that's got to be the number one priority always um And as you guys will know, I gave up drinking for a period of time 
because the, my first instinct was to start to set boundaries. My next instinct was I have been avoiding my feelings by distracting myself with fun stuff, not drinking in a way that wasn't fun. It was fun. Boat parties and going to people's houses and dinner parties. And I have amazing friends. They're really fun. <laughs> Sober or otherwise, but we're, they're really fun. Um, but I would leave those interactions and get in an Uber and cry and get home and call my sister and just be like, I feel so disconnected from my own life. I feel like I am trying to be the person I was before we went to America. And I'm only just accepting, this is what I was saying to her back in January, that I was finally accepting that I am not that person anymore, that I have gone through stuff that is life-changing that is for good or for bad it's always a bit of both right that is really profound um and that just like when I recovered from my eating disorder I had to start to let go of this idea that I should or have to go back to who I was before I made videos about this in recovery that I should put pressure on myself to, you know, go back to who I was before. Well, I'm not who I was before. I lost my dad. I lost my grand. I lost two really important people. I witnessed, you know, I mean, I think seeing a dead body at any point in your life is upsetting, but seeing the dead bodies of two people who you love within seven months of each other uh, is particularly uh, challenging. And I was also put in a position because of the healthcare system, not just in America, but here as well, where we leave the responsibility of somebody's passing up to the person who's passing away and their loved ones. And so I've been left with a lot of guilt and a lot of shame about the fact that the story I've been telling myself for the last year and a half, which I didn't realize I was doing until I went back to therapy is that I betrayed my father by leaving him alone and letting him be moved. That that is his last memory of me. And that in order to try to make it right and try to help him, I ended his life. And I didn't know that was the story I was telling myself. Just like when I had an eating disorder, I didn't know there was a story I was telling myself about how worthless I thought I was and how unlovable I thought I was. Um, I was just accepting it as fact. Um, and when you think that about yourself, where I wouldn't think that about someone else who went through what they went through with my dad, um, I would just feel so terrible for them that they'd been put in that position and here that they did with what they were given, they did the best that they could. And that they should be proud of that. I still don't believe that for myself, but I'm working on it. Um, uh, so I, because I have been telling myself that story for a year and a half, that kind of means you don't, it's very hard to like a person who you believe that about, right? That you betrayed your dad, you essentially ended his life. 
you did a really good job up till then as far as taking care of himself and then you fell at the final hurdle where in fact you know the hurdle was actually a store a story high and on fire and impossible for anyone to clear so like I said um this is all stuff I'm still working through this is stuff I'm still unpacking but the most important thing for me has been giving it a name giving it context knowing that the reason why I talked I've been talking to myself like that and why it's affected my mood my feeling about my life my feelings about my relationships is because I've been fighting against what happened what that makes of my life now what that has done to me as a person that I am a lot more vulnerable than I used to be I'm a lot more sensitive than I used to be Um, I need a lot of gentleness from the people in my life Um, I need space when I need space I need love when I need love I need to be able to figure it out and not need and I need also to be able to have boundaries to take care of myself I need a little more space to take care of myself and the biggest um, favor I did myself was going back to therapy but finding a really good therapist who I had to wait for but she's amazing she is helping me to find compassion for the woman in the room who had to make those decisions and look at her from the outside and find some compassion for her and in doing so helping me to not go into that room every time I try to think about my dad and connect to my dad because that's what I want to be able to do I want to be able to talk about him and talk to him and celebrate him because uh, I think he'd be really cranky with me <laughs> he'd be really really cranky with me for talking to myself the way that I have for the last year and a half and for judging myself and treating myself the way that I have um, but that is something I am currently working on and something I am by different measures willing to share with you guys if that's something you're willing to see me go through and process and learn about like I said with bringing people onto the podcast who can help us all figure it out uh, who can help us understand the shame and the guilt and the regret how to grieve someone but also celebrate them how to manage the trauma how to manage you know being able to take care of yourself and have boundaries and uh, prioritize yourself I've been really lucky I instinctively came home I moved back up from the south coast in June of last year and I came back down here in December and I've been here since then because I knew if I was going to go to this place and let myself really grieve and let myself really do this work I had to be home I had to be close to mum and I've been really lucky that you know we've been able to Lola and I have been down here um, 
together. We aren't staying at mum's. We're staying somewhere else. And we've been together near the ocean. And it's been incredibly healing. And I've told, like I told Josie, I said, I'm really sorry if I can't be a good friend at the moment. I just really need to do what I probably should have done a year and a half ago, which is instead of taking care of other people more, um, is to turn that back around to myself. And she got it. She was like, I'm a mum. I get it. (laughs) You take care of yourself and it's going to get better and you're going to be okay. Um, So I've been really lucky. Uh, I've had great friends like Millie who has dealt with grief as well. My mum's been phenomenal. You know, Um, I'm really, really, really lucky. Um, Josie's been amazing. Um, Mark's been, you know, so compassionate, particularly since I've been able to tell him what's been going on. Um, So I just want to say thank you to everyone who sort of loved me through this weird few months if anyone from my personal life is listening to this I am still alive I am down on the south coast (laughs) taking care of stuff um but like I said I just wanted to share that because I don't want to have to keep retelling it whenever we do an episode about grief traumatic grief I like I said I've got a couple of people lined up who I think are gonna be so helpful for all of us to unpack this who know way more than I do Uh, and I can just send this to them or if anyone listening to future episodes needs context about what I'm talking about in those episodes there's this to refer to and it really helps me too because as much as that was very staggered teary retelling it is one of the best ones I usually or used to before you know unpacking this in therapy I used to not be able to go there just straight up refusal I can't go there um or you wouldn't be able to understand me because I'd be too beside myself uh so this helps me to work on sharing it uh because there is so much here that I want to talk about whether it's grief, whether it's end of life rights, giving people a more compassionate end than what my dad was given, giving families the chance to not uh, add trauma to their grief would be great. Um, All areas that I'd like to discuss and possibly advocate around um, for Mia. Um, So this, I hope, has not depressed everyone too much like I said I'm still learning I'm still working this stuff out Uh, but as far as who I am and the stuff I share I think it's important to understand where people come from why they change uh, what informs that change what informs their focus and what they talk about and I just want to send love out to anyone who is going through this right now who is anticipating loss, who has just lost someone, who is a year and a half or 10 years or 20 years down the track and only just now making the connection that this might be an important part of their healing, facing this realisation that maybe this applies to you and giving yourself the space to unpack that and deal with that. So much love to you guys. Thank you for 
giving me the space to share this. Thank you for being the community that you are. Thank you for letting me be a bit open-ended and not necessarily having the answers. That's kind of my approach with the podcast and why I wanted to start it. Because another big part of my process has been learning to be a student again. That for seven years, increasingly, people have come to me for answers about recovery. I know a lot about recovery. I know a lot about how to help people recover. I know a lot about stats and research and, you know, diagnoses and all of that good stuff. But I forgot to be a student. I forgot to listen. I forgot to sit back and let myself be curious and not have all the answers and to find people who do and to utilize their power and knowledge Um, and I would love to share that with you if that's something you'd like to benefit from so like I said thank you for letting me share this Uh, I hope it could help I hope it can help you understand what's coming with this content a bit more I hope that you are all staying very safe Uh, give your loved ones a COVID safe hug from me if you can particularly your dad's give your dad a hug Um, or if your dad has passed do something nice for yourself today please in the meantime until we chat next episode which will be all about my experience with endometriosis my sister's experience with endometriosis and a bit of information about endometriosis uh, that will be out for the next episode they'll be coming out on mondays from now on i think yes anyway guys sending you all the love in the world and I'll talk to you next time.